Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. As people mark World Refugee Day on Monday, the UK seems determined to send away refugees from its soil. Why is the UK government pressing ahead with a controversial migration deal with Rwanda? And 25 years of the Hong Kong SAR, how far has it gone? Firm enough on its own two feet? Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you live from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. A flight carrying asylum seekers was stopped at last minute from departing the UK last week. They were the first batch of refugees the UK deems inadmissible who were to be offshore to Rwanda in a new bilateral deal. But the United Nations and the European Court of Human Rights, together with other human rights advocacy groups, have strongly criticised the deal for treating refugees like commodities. Why has the UK insisted on such a controversial policy? Why has it on strong objections and are the criticisms warranted? I'm pleased to be joined from London by Professor Graham Perry, visiting professor of dispute resolution at the University of International Business and Economics and in Beijing by Wang Tsung, the chief reporter at Global Times. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Professor Perry, thank you very much for joining us at this inconvenient hour from your side. But let me go to you first then. Uh, in an address in April, uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the agreement was reached between the UK and Rwanda and it's called Migration and Economic Development Partnership. He said it means that anyone entering the UK illegally, as well as those who have arrived illegally since January the 1st this year, may now be relocated to Rwanda. But there has been last minute legal wrangling and a full legal hearing is expected soon. So exactly what does this new policy mean and the the deal mean between the two sides? Well, thank you for having me on your program, Lucien. It's always good to be with you. Let, let me say right at the beginning that this is a political problem for the Prime Minister of the UK. He is in political difficulty. He is on the verge of being pushed out of office. He has been found responsible in many ways for if, what something called party gate which had images of people in Downing Street celebrating during the period of lockdown when ordinary people weren't even allowed to go to the funerals of their relatives. Mm. This has caused a lot of animosity. Johnson knows he's in trouble. And in order to preserve his position as Prime Minister, he's trying to recreate the anti-immigration movement that won him Brexit and that won him the general election. During Brexit, Johnson headed the campaign, which in the final days before the vote, tried to frighten the British voters into believing that five million Turkish refugees would be coming into the UK. He's trying to do this again now because he's in political difficulty. He is in a lot of trouble. So the move to create a movement of refugees from the UK to Rwanda is an attempt to prove his uh, credentials as a Prime Minister, as a man of action, as a man who can find solutions to the increased number of people seeking entry 
to the UK. Mm. That is the problem. Well, in a statement, he did say that uh, the deal is to fight trade, human trafficking, and to um, fight against people smuggling, because a lot of people, supposedly, according to him, drown while trying to cross the English Channel to reach the UK. However, Wang Tong, uh, the UN refugee chief uh, actually said explicitly that he doubts this is the real motivation behind the deal. So what exactly do you think is the real motivation of this deal? Well, well I think, as me... the professor uh, put it, uh, it's all about politics, uh, self-serving politics uh, with regard to Mr. Johnson's political standing in the UK. He's trying to do this to win some political talking points because this week he's facing more questions from Parliament about his party gate. Uh, so I think the, but the broader point is anybody with a reasonable mind should you know, have no problem understanding to see what this move is, which is a complete disregard to humanity, to international laws, and to the people who uh, are trying to seek asylum in the UK. But the broader point I want to mention, the most appalling of all this is, the, is how the Johnson administration is, respons is responding to all the criticism from the UN, from the European Court, and from within the uh, UK politics that it's the toughness, the stubbornness, the carelessness about the move, the, this immoral, illegal move, uh, that shows that everything within the UK, you know, the so-called democratic uh, system, uh, that everything is about talking point, about elections, about surviving uh, political scandals. I think this is a broader issue. And also another uh, problem is we have heard criticism from the UN, from European courts, but the, the rest of the Western world is missing. The U.S. has not been speaking about this issue. Mm. The Australia, uh, other European governments. Uh, this is uh, really, uh, you know, really appalling that nobody is paying attention to people who are discarded by the U.K. government as commodities, as cargoes. Right. Well, the UN uh, refugee chief, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, has called the policy all wrong. He said that the UK is a signatory to the International Convention on Refugees. So trying to export the responsibilities that this entailed runs contrary to any notion of responsibility and international responsibility sharing. Professor Perry, what exactly do you think he really means here by exporting responsibility? Is the UK uh, besides the political talking points you want to uh, draw on, is the UK paying for a cheaper way to handle immigrants? Well, there is a problem of people coming into the UK in large numbers. I don't want to pretend there isn't an issue. Large numbers of people from overseas seek refuge in the UK. Some of them are political refugees and some of them are what we call economic migrants seeking a better life. But people do come to the UK, more people know the English language and people and therefore come to the UK and more people know that there is in the UK system um, law and order and rights for individuals. There is also a large number of lawyers who will assist people seeking rights to remain in the UK. Mm. But bear in mind that the UK has accepted a large number of refugees from Ukraine without complaint. These are people coming from Ukraine, fleeing from the war in Ukraine. They are coming into the UK. 
but Johnson is trying to whip up a frenzy against immigrants with a different color. I make no, mis no, 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 no apologies for making the point so baldly and so straightforwardly. It is a great embarrassment to me as a citizen of the UK to accuse the Prime Minister of being racist, but that is the reality. So Britain has to do its part. If I can just say to you, Lucien, yes. Johnson tries to appear as a person who is protecting the refugees because people have died in the English Channel right. when boats have been overturned. Since 2015, Wang Song, let me go to you here. Since 2015, the UK statistics show that the UK took in 20,000 uh, from Syria. 13,000 from Afghanistan. Uh, these numbers may seem large, but compared to the millions of refugees and displaced people that have fled the wars, these people are actually very small. And uh, we know that the UK is a major party to the NATO, to the military intervention into these conflicts. Shouldn't the UK be doing more to deal with the consequences, um, which is displacement of people? Exactly. That's to the point uh, uh, of the UN Human Rights Chief mentioned responsibility. The UK has a, a moral responsibility, not only because uh, it's, a, a, it's a country with a, a self-proclaimed uh, human rights defender, it's also, the, uh, it's also part of the cause to why these people flee their country and risk their lives to seek better lives in the UK in hopes of seeking better lives in the UK. Because as you mentioned, uh, UK is part of NATO and is part of every war that the US has waged and it's second only to the US in terms of military input in those wars, particularly in Afghanistan. So UK also has vowed, pledged, uh, promised many in Afghanistan and other countries that helped its war uh, campaign there to provide them uh, a, a, a place to, to stay. Mm -hmm. And now they're turning their backs on that. Not only that, people risk their lives to, uh, uh, to reach the shores of UK. And what they do, they, they put them on the plane against their will and then discard them in another country. And another, another point is, uh, I think, uh, like the, as the professor uh, put it, Yes, I understand there's a crisis, immigration crisis going on in the UK, which uh, can be dangerous to the immigrants. However, this is not the point is this. This is not the way to handle it. People know it, but the UK government, Mr. Johnson, okay. is still pushing for it. That, right. That's the problem. Professor Perry, very quickly, do you see this becoming uh, the beginning of a new practice because we already see Australia uh, doing the same thing offshoring refugees or asylum seekers to Nauru. We are seeing Denmark also exploring or looking into the possibility of doing that. And uh, Johnson says this could be the beginning of uh, a new international standard despite all the criticism that has come the UK way. Do you think this is going to happen eventually despite all the criticism? Very briefly, please. No, I'll be brief. There is a political fight taking place in the UK. This will not be easy. Johnson may win, but he may also be defeated. Just to say one point, Lucien, the Labour Shadow Home Secretary, that's Yvette Cooper, a well-recognised leading politician, a Labour person, mm -hmm. has pointed to the extreme cost to the Australians of seeking to f pursue a similar policy in Australia. 
it is extremely expensive. There's one last point I would make. Refugees have made a big contribution to the UK over the years. Jews came in numbers. Mm. Ugandan Asians okay. came in numbers. Right. There's a, there is a future with immigrants in, this UK, in, in the UK. Johnson has got his policy wrong. And explicitly, according to the International Convention on Refugees, countries signatories, which the UK is, must not send asylum seekers away before their, ident their cases have been processed. So in that case, there is a clear, there is apparently a clear breach there. Many thanks to my guests, Professor Graham Perry at the University of International Business and Economics and Wang Tsong from the Global Times. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, a Hong Kong SAR milestone, its 25th anniversary in July, older and wiser, we'll get to the point, stay with we all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. The Hong Kong Special Administrator Region will turn 25 on July the 1st. In traditional Chinese thinking, this is a period of time between early adulthood and being able to stand firm on one's own. As China celebrates the 25th anniversary of the handover, what positive changes have occurred to enable the region to stand firm? What's the biggest hurdle and why is it time to educate the young people to foster a correct understanding of Hong Kong's history? For earlier, I had the pleasure to talk to Adrian Ho, a Central Committee member of the New People's Party and founder of the Facebook group Save Hong Kong. He's also one of the few from Hong Kong who know Xinjiang firsthand. He shared with me his personal observations on how Xinjiang emerged from an era of fear. So, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know you established Save Hong Kong, which is a Facebook group to support pro-establishment camp in August 2019. What made you think that Hong Kong needed to be saved back then? Thanks for having me. I found the Save Hong Kong at the peak of the riots and political unrest, on top of violent behaviors all over Hong Kong, putting people's lives in danger. Anyone who has a pro-establishment opinion will get crucified and scrutinized with their personal and family information exposed online. At the time, the internet and social media was filled with opinion to justify criminal activities in order to achieve their so-called political goals. That's when I felt the need to establish a pro-establishment social media platform for people to freely express their opinion without being judged, crucified, and scrutinized. I understand that the group was shut down uh, once by Facebook in 2020, but it quickly attracted around uh, 80,000 members after you re-established it. Why was it shut down? Why was it not allowed? And why do you think it uh, attracted so many people once it was uh, reopened? It's one of life's mysteries to this day. Um, I was notified that we were flagged for regulated goods, which, strangely speaking, masks 
were even considered to be regulated goods during that time. So maybe because of that, but I didn't really focus on what went wrong, rather on how to pick ourselves up. So I started a new group immediately. We were blessed that we had a big presence at the time and our members were loyal and they believed the importance of the group. So the majority rejoined. Since the implementation of the national security law in Hong Kong, and now that the new electoral system has been improved and executed, what has been the impact on Save Hong Kong and yourself? Uh, is such a group still needed now that Hong Kong has regained its stability? Have the group's goals evolved? I believe members of Safe Hong Kong, myself included, were frustrated in regards to the political unrest in 2019 and the better half of 2020. The national security law and the new electoral system provided a much needed breathing room for all of us. The tone of people's voices changed from being desperate to being hopeful, to say the very least. Does Hong Kong still need saving? Um, short answer is yes. The political turmoil followed by COVID-19 revealed a lot of deep-seated social and economic problems that existed for years. The polarized society right now is only the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot more problems that requires attention. Mm -hmm. um, in the beginning, we functioned as an online discussion group, but as time progresses, we felt the need to evolve by doing more charity work to help people in need. For example, we held an online charity concert to raise money for two charitable organizations, as well as organizing volunteer work to help the underprivileged. In the future, we will continue to do so. Many uh, international media, especially Western media, were uh, gloomy about Hong Kong's future. However, if you look at the reality, for instance, uh, a very latest annual report by an institution in Switzerland called the IMD, and they release a world uh, competitiveness ranking every year for a long time. Hong Kong, for the latest report, has actually climbed up by two spots to the fifth place worldwide. And if you look at uh, uh, economies with uh, smaller population, Hong Kong actually ranks number four, even higher than the fifth place I just mentioned. So that's kind of um, the opposite of what a lot of people are saying, that Hong Kong is doomed, you know, freedom in the city is gone, the vitality of the city is gone. What do you think really kept the city vital, relevant and competitive? I think Hong Kong is very unique that it has an open and free market with low taxation, uh, free portrait and a very established international financial market. And on top of that, Hong Kong has an efficient public sector and a favorable business environment with a level paying field where companies of any size can thrive. The dip in ranking is almost entirely due to COVID-19. We cannot be as opened up to international business as we could. So I could see a dip in ranking in the last couple of years, primarily due to that. However, as we get over COVID, as we recover from COVID, I think our competitiveness and our competitive ranking will go back to where it was um, in no time.
July the 1st will mark the 25th anniversary of uh, Hong Kong's return to Chinese rule. Looking back at the 25 years, how successful has the one country, two systems arrangement been? And going next, what's the big mountain, if I can yeah, use, borrow this term, to be scaled for Hong Kong? One country, two system has been implemented for 25 years already. Time really flies, doesn't it? Um, and Hong Kong is able to capitalize with one country, two system to establish itself as an international financial center and the dominant gateway to China and the global hub for offshore R&B businesses. And it is the best place to capture China opportunities and be able to cultivate business opportunities that we never had prior to um, one country, two systems. I think the biggest obstacle is that we need to, first of all, unite, reunite our society. Hong Kong has, we have had our ups and downs over the years. However, 2019 and 2020 revealed a lot of deep-seated problems that was unresolved for years and years and years. So I think reuniting our city is definitely one of the most important jobs that I believe that all of us need to do. Earlier this month, the Hong Kong Education Bureau announced there will be new textbooks for the subject of citizenship and social development. Why is it deemed necessary for such changes to take place for the future? And for people who have little idea about the educational materials in Hong Kong, could you give us an example as why it needs to be changed? I do believe this is necessary. And first and foremost, you know, I believe that some critics says that this is merely that Beijing has tightened its grip on Hong Kong. Um, what I want to say to them is that they clearly do not understand the concept of one country, two systems. I think education is the key to development of our youth population and a reform is long overdue. Uh, new textbooks are definitely a great start. The 2019 political unrest reviewed a lot of unresolved social problems that actually stem from education. For years and years, children had been studying textbooks that had its content manipulated to give students a false sense of identity and understanding of our country and history. Um, citizenship and social development education, in my opinion, needs to start from the ground up. But textbook is only one element. Um, in this day and age where you have an abundant amount of information on the internet, textbooks alone ain't gonna be sufficient. Hmm. It requires schools, teachers, parents, and peers all work together to make this happen. And the goal is not only to absorb the correct information, but to develop critical thinking skills to recognize and therefore utilize the correct information. And only then I think students will have a much better understanding on citizenship and healthy social development. Finally, uh, you have done extensive research about Xinjiang as uh, you are the chairman of a Xinjiang wind power company. Um, have you been to Xinjiang, Adrian? I have for have. almost 10 years now. 
Why decided to invest in Xinjiang? What is the situation now, 10 years after you started uh, to be interested in Xinjiang? When I first started investing in Xinjiang, I saw the big potential that Xinjiang has. Xinjiang not only has uh, one of the most diverse uh, ethnic group population in the country, um, it is a region that is very rich in resources. Um, the government has implemented a lot of policies to um, help economic development in the region. So in light of that, I could see that Xinjiang would only prosper from that point on. So this is one of the reasons why I decided to um, pack my bags and invest in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. Now, the other reason is that during that time, um, one of the big plans in the country is to develop the Big West region. So the entire region, um, Xinjiang included, are being developed heavily. So myriads of business opportunities um, uh, service during that time. So it was definitely at the right time, at the right place. Great to have you on the show, Adrian. And thanks for sharing with us your understanding and your experiences regarding Hong Kong and Xinjiang. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got the point. Welcome to My Stories of Chinese Characters, Season 2. I'm Uncle Han Zi. This season, we will travel to different destinations and experience the different sceneries throughout the year. This season, we will taste delicious foods. Delicious, how sure. Feel the delicacy of Chinese silk. Uh, some people say that this is the world's first computer because each one of these is an instruction. And enjoy the local architectures. Yes, it's a big house, Chuanzhou's Wu We will feel a sense of camaraderie on the slow train. And feel the excitement of the snowfields. Yes! 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 I'm Uncle Han Zi. This season, we will take you to see a different China from the perspective of Chinese characters. Meet us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms, or on our website, radio.cgtn.com.